Let us pray. Gracious God, for the gift of this day, we give you thanks for the promise and the power of your word. We are grateful indeed. And we ask you to open that word to us now. For Christ's sake, amen. Our epistle lesson of the day comes from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church, portions of the first and of the first chapter. Let us hear God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you and one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. To this end, we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I mentioned last Sunday that we visited Washington, D.C. over the summer. We have close friends whose daughter works in the White House, and she was able to score us a tour. Now, I don't know about you, things have changed since I was a kid. My father called our congressional representative's office and he set us up with a tour back then and it felt as if we had the run of the place. But because of September 11th and other attacks on the White House itself, there are fewer tours, they are restricted in scope, and there is an extensive security process that you fill out even before you're allowed to enter the building. That day it was very hot and very humid, and we were glad to finally maneuver the lines and enter the building. And once in, I half expected to see Jed Bartlett, the West Wing president, or Fitzgerald Grant, the scandal president. I'm not sure I wanted to see Frank Underwood, the House of Cards president, but you never know. Now before I tell you, the most significant part of that visit. There were two other things that happened. As we were waiting in an outer corridor for the official tour to begin, I looked down. It was a dog, a black fluffy dog brushing up against my leg, and then it was another. It was Bo and Sonny, the White House dogs coming back in from a walk around the grounds, right by where we were standing. And even though I'm not a dog person, that was a really cool moment. Then a little bit later, we saw a line of women walking on another part of the tour in another room. They were all wearing sashes and tiaras. It was Miss America and the 50 state pageant winners. They were receiving their own private tour. An hour later, after all of this was done, when our tour was over and we were at a sandwich shop gulping down one more bottle of water, we saw the women 
crossing the street about a block away in a kind of line, a pageant formation, I thought it was, I didn't know. So about a block away, I very unashamedly yelled out, hey, Miss New York, and a woman waved to us, and that was kind of cool as well. I think my traveling companions probably rolled their eyes at that point, but that's okay. But in between those two things, those fun things, something even more exciting happened, and it was ultimately much more meaningful than that. As we were waiting to enter one of the main White House rooms, we suddenly detected lots of activity. People were scurrying around. A bunch of snipers appeared, heavily armed and heavily protected with vests and other protective gear, carrying very, very serious-looking weapons. And we looked to our left out a window, and we saw a helicopter landing. It was Marine One, the presidential helicopter landing on the White House lawn like we have seen on television so many times. We watched as dozens of staffers move from here to there to prepare the helicopter for its entry by some very important passengers, we guessed. Then Michelle Obama appeared and walked across the lawn and climbed the stairs and got in the helicopter. Then just a moment or two later, President Obama appeared as well and did the same thing. Really, he was just a few yards from us, though we were separated by some very thick glass. And then like that, the helicopter ascended and flew off. We presumed it was headed to Andrews Air Force Base. And for a civics geek like me, it was all just a very awesome moment. But it came more powerful and meaningful several hours later. We returned to our hotel and I flipped on the TV. And there, in fact, was the president and the first lady in Dallas, speaking at a memorial service for the five Dallas police officers who had been shot and killed, along with nine other officers and two civilians wounded. They were killed on duty during an otherwise peaceful protest of two African-American men who were shot and killed, you will remember, in Louisiana and Minnesota by police officers themselves, killed in the line of duty at an event, protesting the very conduct of that duty elsewhere. And so I thought about all of that, the confluence, as I watched our little brush with what was going on in the nation, race, police, protest, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, gun violence. I wondered if as he was getting on the helicopter, the president was thinking about what he would say in just a few hours, and how on earth does one say anything, anything again to a nation seemingly trapped in a vortex from which we cannot seem to escape and which this campaign has only seemed to intensify. What does one say? Well, I could read the president's entire speech, and we would be benefited this morning. Maybe this afternoon you can go home and do that, but here's just a little portion of it. With an open heart, he said, we can learn to stand in each other's shoes and look at the world through each other's eyes. With an open heart, we can abandon the overheated rhetoric and the oversimplification 
that reduces whole categories of our fellow Americans, not just to opponents, but to enemies. With an open heart, we can embark on the hard but necessary work of negotiation, the pursuit of reconciliation. The pursuit of reconciliation. It is Reformation Sunday. It's perhaps my favorite Sunday of the church year, happening during a year of reconciliation. We mark Reformation Sunday as the time, now 499 years ago, when a German priest named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses, little protestation statements, on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. In our particular tributary of that Protestant movement, John Calvin and others formed what we know now as the Reformed Church of which Presbyterianism is a major branch with particular ways of thinking and organizing and acting. Now on some Reformation Sundays I like to think about the interior life of the church. On other Reformation Sundays I like to think about how all this matters in the world. What it means for the Protestant and Reformed and Presbyterian Church to be in the world. What it means for you and for me as Presbyterians or otherwise, loosely affiliated or otherwise, to live in the world. As Presbyterians perhaps, but more fundamentally as people of faith. And this is one of those years. A Reformation Sunday to think about what it means to live in the world. Just one week and two days before we cast our votes in a presidential election that feels like no other in my adult life, with implications for who we will be long after the votes are cast and a winner is declared, if in fact a winner is declared. In some ways, our task is President Obama's task. What on earth do we say? And how on earth do we act in this world where the pursuit of reconciliation, let alone anything that comes even close to the achievement of it, seems so extraordinarily elusive? I must admit I am not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. Optimism asks, acts as if everything is going to be okay. Hope, Anna DeVere Smith says, has to do not with thinking everything is going to be okay, but seeing that it's not, and then acting anyway. I like that. So I'm hopeful as I, with you, as all of us together, seek to act out our faith in the world with all the evidence to the contrary, seeking to live into a vision of reconciliation, that's fortified by justice and love and undergirded by hope. They're called the minor prophets, but there's nothing minor about them. These brief little oracles lodged at the rear section of the Old Testament, we whiz by them every so often on our way to something else. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. 
And today, Habakkuk. It's likely that Habakkuk was written 600 years or so before Jesus, but that's uncertain, as is the particular historical or religious circumstance of its writing. What is certain, however, is the prophet's central concern for justice in the face of seeming insurmountable injustice in the world. As Ted Hebert writes, real-world politics appearing to be continually at odds with the prophetic passion for justice and faith in God's just rule. How do we believe in the face of an exceedingly and overwhelmingly unjust world? How long will I cry for help to you, O God, and you seem not to listen? And yet, the prophet says, and we echo these words, in the face of violence and injustice and despair, I will stand and I will wait and I will watch. And as we wait, Tim read these words, the prophet finally responds, hearing God's word, write the vision. Write the vision. Make it plain and clear and big so all can see it. For there still is a vision. It is true and it is strong. And it's to be believed. So hopeful, even if not optimistic, in the face of all evidence, because of this vision which we are called to write. The African-American theologian Lewis Baldwin writes of Habakkuk, the word vision is often associated with one's sense of sight or the capacity to see with one's eyes. But in the larger sense, vision involves seeing or perceiving what is not actually visible to the eye, whether by some intellectual sharpness or divine endowment. Vision requires extraordinary sight, an anticipatory spirit, imagination, and the capacity to dream what might appear on the surface to be the impossible dream. Baldwin writes, the prophet of God in any age becomes the visionary who is willing and ready to discern the purpose of God as it marches through history. The best humans can do, he concludes, is to remain spiritually and morally active while waiting for the fullness of the divine answer. So God assures the prophet Habakkuk who questions. God says, indeed, I am alive and well and active in the world. You may not always perceive it or understand it, but know that I am here, God says, to the prophet and to us. So have faith. That's the vision. The scholar Dennis Bratcher asked the question that I often ask, maybe you do as well. Even if God really is working to address the injustice of the world around us, how shall we live as God's people in a world that we experience as unjust? What does it mean to be faithful? Another way to ask it on this day is how do we reformers, and we are all reformers, how do we reformers sustain the vision? Our forebear, John Calvin, believes strongly 
in civic government and its capacity to govern. I wonder if Calvin is spinning in his unmarked grave right now. Or I wonder what would the prophet Habakkuk say about this moment in which we find ourselves. Now this is not about HRC versus the Donald. That's not appropriate for me to tell you that. As one of our Reformed and Presbyterian values affirms, God alone is Lord of the conscience. But it's okay for me to say this. Listen to your conscience. Pay attention to it. And vote, definitely vote, don't sit this one out. And even if you are not optimistic, and the tenor of this campaign has not made me more so, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Be hopeful that God is somehow active and alive. Because our role as people of faith is not to buy into cynicism and ugliness and despair, but to proclaim the vision. Proclaim the vision, which will look like many things to be sure, but one of the things it will look like is reconciliation. Reconciliation will be about who we are as a people. We can disagree on many things. We will, we should, in fact. One of the tragedies of this campaign, I believe, is that it's been so void of ideas and so focused on personal attack. We can disagree on many things, how to address this problem or how to solve that one. And reconciliation will not smooth over differences, nor should it. But it will have something to say about how we treat each other, red and blue and any and every color on November 9 and following, as well as every moment until November 8, how we talk about each other, how we talk to and with each other, whether in the corridors of power or in the anonymity of cyberspace. And then we, and each of us, as players in this game, can decide how we will act and how we will participate in this moment and in this arena. And reconciliation has to be about the vision, whose elements include racial justice, and children, and peace, whose elements must include how women are talked about and treated. It must include conversations about all those who are different from us, whether they look differently or speak differently or act differently, immigrants and refugees, people living in poverty, whether in our cities or in rural areas what reconciliation must look like, and it can only flourish if we walk and work together, and it can only flourish if the values of justice and love are on the table and at the center of the conversation. So on this Reformation Sunday, here are our marching orders. Be prophets, be protesters, be reformers, be citizens, be hopeful. Write the vision. Write the vision in the face of injustice. It is justice in the face of hate. It is love in the face of brokenness. It is reconciliation.
Thanks be to God. Amen.